Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Coming up on today's shows, Canada's premiers have come together, a united front, try and get more money from the federal government for healthcare in this country. Restaurants industry still struggling to attract workers, and now we're starting to see benefits packages for their staff. And it is Halloween, and all these songs are having their moment in the sun. As federal health care disappears, so do our doctors. The provinces are doing their part, but we need the federal government to restore health care funding now to keep our systems strong. That is a line taken directly from a new ad, which is paid for by the provinces in an effort to try and ramp up the pressure on Ottawa. It's part of a new campaign that has been launched just last week to try and, as I say, get the feds to, well, come up with some money. Uh, for healthcare primarily is what the push is. So to talk about what's going on and how this might work, we're going to chat with Dr. Colleen Flood, a research, research chair in health law and policy at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Flood, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Glad to be here, Shane. So so this new campaign, clearly, we, we know without a doubt that we have a health care crisis from coast to coast to coast. We all have heard the stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, is So how do we see this? Is this the provinces attempting to shift some of the pressure they're under to the feds? I mean, it is provincial jurisdiction. So what's the strategy here? Oh, well, I think that is uh, definitely the strategy of the provinces uh, to try to um, deflect some of the uh, blame, I guess, to the to the federal government uh, for what we're experiencing. But I think, you know, for Canadians, they have to ask themselves, what should we be asking for from both the provinces mm. and the federal government? Because you just said it's uh, provincial jurisdiction. It's actually shared jurisdiction, according to the Supreme Court of Canada. So the federal government has a role here in, in funding and in other uh, aspects of healthcare, and of course, too, the provinces have a very significant role. So it's not one or the other; they're both accountable for what we're experiencing right now, and we should be looking to both of them for improvement. Right. Yeah. So I mean, when we take a look at that, like the province is saying, okay, we need funding to go up to thirty-five percent. It's at about twenty-two right now, but the Fed say, well, no, because it's not just the money that we give you. There's other costs involved. So do we really know who isn't pulling their weight, or are they both at fault? I mean, do we know if someone's sort of letting the other side down at all? Uh, it's, a, it's a bit difficult because the funding kind of comes into a general pot for the provinces and it's really hard to know how much exactly kind of goes to healthcare once it comes into that pot from the federal government. Mm-hmm. But clearly, you know, over time from the original conception of Medicare, it was a 50-50 deal. And it does seem that the Fed's contribution has declined. But, I mean, the real question is, you know, when the funding comes in from the federal government, what will the provinces do with it? And I think that's, um, you know, the the big question. And 
why aren't they doing that now? You know, if they get more money from the federal government, you know, as a Canadian, what I want to know is what will you do with it right now, right now, to improve access uh, for people who can't access the care they desperately need? And I think that's what everybody wants to see, something happening, right? including the Prime Minister. I mean, Trudeau has said he wants to see some some results before we just uh, yep. increase the amount of money. He wants to see this tied to tangible results. It, it, so is, is that fair? He wants to see the provinces taking some steps prior to just writing another check? Well, I think the obligation that provinces owe is to their citizens. And so, you know, whether you're in Alberta, BC, Nova Scotia, I think each province should be articulating to their citizens, what will we do with this extra money that we get? So, you know, the same old, same old provinces say, we're not going to, you can't tie strings to the funding you give us, federal government, it's not your jurisdiction, you know, blah, blah. But I think, you know, from coast to coast, we as Canadians can ask our provinces, well, tell us what you're going to do with this extra money, because we don't just want it to go to the status quo uh, doing the same old, same old, um, you know, which is not changing things. We need urgent and immediate action. Uh, I think the federal government does need to put more money in on an emergency basis because we're still dealing with the pandemic, the aftershocks of various ways of the pandemic and probably going into more. So, you know, this is an emergency. The federal government needs to come to the table, but the provinces need to articulate very clearly to us what they're going to do. And I think that's such a great point because it's it's always money, 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 right? We need more money. We need more money. And I think all of us recognize that we've gone through this process so many times, doctor, and the results haven't gotten any better. So um, yeah. that that should be part of our conversation at this point is, okay, it's not about money. We've got to do things differently, right? Absolutely. We need to do things differently. We do need, I think, some more money right now because, for example, I think... One of the things we have to do is uh, increase um, wages for nurses who are leading, leaving the profession in droves after you know almost three years of the pandemic. We have to keep those profession, uh, those nurses back, get them back into the profession and stop them leaving. So we do need some more money in the system. But you know, if that's not part of the plan on the part of the provinces. Um, then I wouldn't be supportive of just putting more money in. Where is the money going to go? Are they going to do anything about ensuring that every Canadian has access to a primary health care team or home, right? Mm -hmm. That's got to be a really important part of whatever any new money does. How can we make sure that every Canadian doesn't have to, well, that every Canadian has a primary health care home and is not going to an emergency room to get the most basic uh, health care need met. That's utterly ridiculous and part of the problem why we're uh, suffering right now. It all comes down to people, though, right, Doctor? I mean, that's the thing. Like you say, nurses, we need to keep nurses. We know there's a shortage of labor throughout the healthcare system right across the right. country. So how do we manufacture more people? It's people and hours. So the hours that they're working and scope of practice. So we can do things. Uh, So, for example, we want to get more nurses uh, and keep them uh, so we can pay them more to stop them leaving. We can provide incentives to primary health care teams to do more work virtually, for example, and if they take on more patients to give them more money if they do do that, particularly to service people in remote and rural areas. 
we can. Um, you had a brilliant orthopedic surgeon in, um, in Alberta, uh, Cy Frank, who used uh, a sort of centralised mechanism for wait time so that people came into a central queue and went to uh, the first available uh, health, uh, orthopedic surgeon. And uh, that showed that this was a much more efficient and best way to manage um, uh, wait times for orthopedic surgery. So we do have some uh, evidence about how to do things more efficiently. We know um, if we put some dollars in strategic places, we can in the short term, um, as you say, kind of get more bodies working in the healthcare system. And that's what we need to do. Yeah, absolutely. And we need to do it. I mean, as we all know, it's, I mean, there, there is no time. There's no time. It's already into a crisis situation. So we need to act. We yes. need to act now. Absolutely. And that's, you know, what I worry about is that some of the calls that you see from various groups are all pretty long term stuff. You know, yes, we need to, you know, train more doctors and nurses possibly. But, you know, in the short term, what are we going to do to bring more uh, of the healthcare workforce on tap and get them working more hours yeah. and not leaving our profession? And can we do things, you know, like um, a lot of primary healthcare providers complain now about administrative burden, filling out forms basically. So, can the government provide that kind of administrative support, the sort of back office functions for primary health care teams so they can see more patients? That's the kind of thing we need to do to tweet. Absolutely, yeah. Doctor, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you being here. My pleasure, Shane. Thank you for having me. That is Dr. Colleen Flood, who is a research chair in health law and policy at the University of Ottawa. just finished talking about healthcare and, and the crisis that we're seeing there. Similar situation in a lot of ways, and not nearly as dire for most of us. I mean, it's a big deal, but I mean, of course, it pales in comparison to our health and safety. But we're talking about what's going on in our hospitality industry and specifically in restaurants. And I don't know about you, but I've been to a few restaurants, some of my faves that... Um, I think one of them might be closed permanently now, but I know they had big signs up when we showed up saying, you know what, we can only stay open until eight tonight. We're not open on this day. We're not open on that day. We just don't have the staff. We don't have the people. And we've done a number of segments uh, in the past months about the restaurant industry and how much trouble they're having attracting people and getting people to to fill all the shifts that they need to operate at full capacity. Um, what about benefits? Is that possibly, we've talked about, you know, wages and incentives and other ways, could benefits, which have never been industry standard, could that be something that we see going forward? We're going to chat with Bruce McAdams, who is a restaurant researcher and an associate professor in the School of Hospitality, Food and Tourism Management at the University of Guelph. Bruce, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you, Shay. So this labor shortage that we're seeing in Canada's restaurant industry, it, it's not gotten any better, has it? I mean, we're still in a situation where really short of workers. You know, uh, in my 30 years in the industry, we've always had shortages. Um, but honestly, this is the first crisis we've really faced. And it's, it, as you mentioned, it's existential. It's, it's affecting uh, operators' hours, whether yeah. they can open, whether they can open for a season or they can stay open late at night if they can open their patio. And, and this is all because of uh, 
you know, lack of, of not only staff, but management. It used to be that most of the shortages were found in the kitchen, um, and that was a continuous issue. But now uh, even finding servers is a challenge and finding managers as well. Um, is, there, is there any way of putting a number on it? Do we know? I mean, is that possible to say, you know, we're short 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 workers in the country? Between two and three hundred thousand dollars, or two hundred and three hundred thousand workers in food service right now, and that's out of about one point two million uh, jobs that there are. So there's about twenty twenty percent of the the workforce right now. Twenty twenty five percent were short. Now we know there's a, a shortage of labor in just about every industry, so it's tough. It's tough to try and get people to come and work for you. You've got to put together the right package. And we've talked before about how restaurant operators are are trying to do that. So are are the incentives continuing? Are they still trying to come up with ways to entice people to come and work in the restaurant? Absolutely, and and things are are speeding up out of necessity. You know, before COVID and before the existential crisis we're in right now, um, there were progressive employers that had started offering benefits to hourly, you know, frontline workers, not just salaried management. Uh, and and that had you know was a small percentage of restaurants. It really, as you mentioned, wasn't something that was was common. And the industry has struggled, you know, uh, with a bit of a stigma as a transient. Um, industry where you go for part-time work or you go between jobs or while you're, you know, you're working a second job to save money for a house or something like that. So, you know, this is also part of the industry evolving and saying, we better, we better start looking more like a secure and stable career for people, not just a a transient job. And, And there's an association with benefits and, and stability and security and, and sort of a, a higher-end industry. So definitely moving for, for those reasons. Yeah, and you make a good point because I think for a lot of people, although a lot of people will spend their entire lives working in the hospitality industry, you know, but outside of management, I mean, for servers and things like that, I don't think it's ever been viewed as, as a career, right? It's always, well, I'm doing this while I go to school or while I, you know, while I look for another job. It's always sort of had that kind of thought process. It, it did. And you know what? And we had people. We had an endless supply of people because there was always young people coming up yeah. and the demographics the way they were. There was always the supply. But what's happened now is it's the same feeling that this is a temporary transient uh, industry. And when we go to the labor pool, there's no one there now to fill the jobs. So, so this is uh, why we are where we are now. Um, so, you know, when we talk about benefits and health benefits, that's never really been part of the equation when it comes to restaurant staff, has it? No management staff in restaurants for some, but yep. uh, frontline employees. No, and and there's a cost associated. The restaurants that I've dealt with that have brought benefit packages, it's you know around a thousand, twelve hundred dollars for an individual plan, and up to eighteen hundred, two thousand for a a family plan. So it's a significant uh, cost increase. But this is something that that. Uh, employers now are trying to differentiate themselves any way they can in such a competitive market. So, so this is something that's very easy for them to do. It's, it's you know, changing other things like, um, you know, working long hours and working holidays and things like that. That's a harder thing for the industry to deal with. But this is something that, that restaurants, if they want to make the investment, can do and check that box and say, we offer benefits 
and and the other the other uh, restaurants aren't. I wonder if it could create another problem. I, I, and you know, like that cost you mentioned is pretty significant. So if you're, you know, you're running a small family restaurant, a mom and pop operation with a couple of staff, bringing in that benefit is a big hit. Whereas if you're a multinational corporation with chains of restaurants in six different countries all across the, you know, you've got hundreds of outlets and thousands and thousands of staff. It's a different calculation. Could that sort of set up a a two tiered system within restaurants where you know the smaller operations just can't offer the same benefits. Well, I think even more than cost, Shay, is is the expertise and the and the ability sure. to to implement the plan. And where I'm seeing the barriers is when I'm speaking to small operators, they're like, I wouldn't know where to start to yeah. have benefits for my from my employees. So there is probably a cost equally associated with both, but where the, the small restaurants really hurt is not having the expertise or, or not the knowledge knowing, hey, where do I even start? You know, I've had my business 20 years. I've never paid benefits. I don't, who do I call sort of thing. So that's a big barrier. Yeah, that makes really good sense too. So do you think this is going to be something that uh, does become industry standard? Is this something that restaurants are going to have to incorporate into their planning? I, I think it it is. And it's funny, once once you offer benefits, it's hard to start taking them away. Yeah. So I think we're going to see this move over the next year or two where, where a significant amount of employers are doing this and that will then become and move uh, the industry standard a little higher, which in, in the long run, will be a better thing for the industry. Sure it will, yeah. Will it work, though? I mean, like you say, we're talking yeah. long run. There's a lot of places worried about how they're going to open the doors this weekend. Absolutely. So this is not a this is not a short term um, fix for the industry. It could be a short term fix for the operators that that put it in place. So that's probably where the benefit is going to be for for those uh, operators that can get something like this working right away. The industry is still going to struggle as as it morphs and and tries to grow into being a better employer. And, and you're going to see lots of other things. You're going to see, you know. Um, uh, profit sharing, uh, education, pay, RSP matching. You're you're going to see um, better scheduling. You're going to see paid sick days. You're going to see the landscape hmm. really change. Yeah, and that will completely because, like you say, that takes um, that whole casual, transient nature of that work and turns it into a career essentially. Yep, and that's what the industry is going to have to do because yeah. the the demographics are not showing any any signs of changing and getting more young people. And and honestly, the young people uh, are not attracted to the industry like they were years ago. Um, there's just a lot not a lot that are entering. And unfortunately, I hear firsthand from my students because of this labor crisis we're in. Restaurants aren't operating at their ideal efficiency. I don't yeah. know if you've noticed it, but it's so so kids that are going in the industry right now are are really going into some challenging um operations just because of dealing with the labor shortage and so it's it's you know it's this catch 22 situation where they're going to have less than great experiences and say holy cow this is what being in a restaurant <laughs> is like I'm you know so so we're in a bit of a we're in a bit of a pickle the industry yeah, no question about it, and have been. And, and, and like you yep. say, it's going to take lots of different strategies to try and turn things around. Uh, great insight, Bruce. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Shay. Have a good day. You too. That is Bruce McAdams. He is a restaurant researcher and associate professor in the School of Hospitality, Food, and Tourism Management at the University of Guelph. And that's kind of interesting. I mean, we've talked before about how uh, the way that we work um, has changed and now this whole hybrid environment for a lot of people and work from home and, and all the rest of that stuff has sort of become part of our conversation when we talk about, 
you know, career life balance and all the rest of that stuff. I wonder, could we be seeing a fundamental shift when it comes to the restaurant industry? Because I think, you know, you do have people who make a career out of hospitality, but typically they're managers or, or something like that. When it comes to servers and, and the rest, now that they're talking about bringing in benefits and all the rest of that stuff, does that change the way we view this? My favorite, if I had to pick my favorite Halloween song, and it's kind of a stretch to call it Halloween. That's a good one. Warren Zevon, Werewolves of London. That's a good one. Uh, But you know what? The great thing about it is these songs all get the one day a year where they all come back and they sort of have a bit of a splash and it's happening right now. Werewolves of London, not so much. Last time I checked it, it only got up to number 49 on the iTunes charts. Goatsbusters, though, has cracked the top 10. So uh, let's have a chat about Halloween music. Joining us is Eric Alper, freelance music publicist and a Sirius XM radio host. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you. I hope this is a scary, miserable time for you, too. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not at all. We're having a little no, bit of fun. it's all fun and games. Look, did you ever think that you would be listening to Ghostbusters 35 years later? Of course not. There'd be no reason to if it weren't for Halloween, right? And that's the thing about these songs. Like, a lot of them, you'd never hear them again if it weren't for Halloween. No, and that's probably, you know, one of the very few holidays that you can get away with this. Because for Christmas and the holiday season, it literally starts on November 1st uh, when Mariah Carey (laughs) tweets that Halloween is over and it's her time now. So, but for Halloween, you really have 48 hours to to kind of get all your sales, all your YouTube views, all your TikTok videos up there. And then on November 1st, nobody really cares about it anymore, which is why we're seeing the iTunes chart just blow up in terms of successes. Like Monster Mash is number five. You know, Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters is eight. Thriller is nine. This is Halloween is 10. And so next week, all of these songs will pretty much be off the chart. Are you surprised that uh, Monster Mash has made it up to number five. I mean, it's. It, it, I mean, sure, it's once a year is the only time you're ever going to hear it. But number five, like it's ahead of Thriller and Ghostbusters and all those ones you mentioned. Yeah, it, it's mostly because I think Monster Mash is such an old song that um, grandparents know it, parents yeah. know it, teenagers know it. When it hit number one back in 1962, it was kind of, you know, after 1963 and the Beatles came along, I, it, it did okay. I mean, certainly, you know, they were probably making a million dollars worth of royalties every year, which is not bad, but it took something like TikTok to bring it back to a whole new generation where it hit the Billboard Top 20 all over again last year, and it's probably going to stay there every year, like the Mariah Carey's All right. I Want for Christmas is You. Every year, Michael Jackson Thriller is going to come back on yep. the Hot 100 along with the Monster Mash. And this. Like, which I think is the greatest Halloween music. But that's also charting on the... I mean, people just love this one too, right? Yeah, you know, and, and it's so it's so spooky. It, it it's is. It's one of those, like, moments where it, it puts you back into the first time that you heard it as well. It, it It's one of the good ones. And one of the ones I wanted to ask you about, Sarah, do you have Rockwell? Do you have that song? Can you play a bit of that... Um Great song, Eric. And, of course, we now know that that's Michael Jackson. Here's the thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, 
Wait, How did that happen? Jackson. Yeah, Michael Jackson's Thriller was it was an incredible, um, you know, from the from the very get go that. A 14-minute video can be played on much music every hour, it seemed, when it was at its popular and its peak. So in hours, you know, a quarter of programming on MTV in the U.S. and much music here devoted to one song and one artist was simply astonishing. We'll never have that kind of again. And the video was just so elaborate with the choreography and the costumes. And it's the first video to actually be in the National Registry in Washington. It was just that much of an influence. It was like a film there's no question and and, anyone it it just lives on but how did he come to sing up sing um background vocals for rockwell rockwell was a music producer's kid or something like that how did do you know the story behind michael jackson being on that track yeah rockwell is kennedy gordy who is the son of the motown founder barry gordy (laughs) and when kennedy wrote the song and he put the demo together Barry Gordy really didn't have a whole lot of faith in the sun, but then when he heard somebody's watching me, he signed him immediately, and then it was Kennedy, which then changed his name to Rockwell. It, Kennedy's... <laughs> Ken, Michael Jackson sang backup, backup on this song because... Kennedy's sister was married to Jermaine Jackson, who, of course, is Michael Jackson's brother. So he just asked him if he can sing, and then once he did, the song became just a massive hit. Amazing. Just incredible. You know, when we talk about all these songs, were there any of these songs actually written, maybe Monster Mash, were any of them written specifically for Halloween? Like, you talk about Mariah Carey and the Christmas music that we all know, was, and every artist will put out a Christmas album and a Christmas single. Has anybody ever done a Halloween song or are these just ones that we relate to Halloween because they talk about something scary? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because even when you're talking about superstition from Stevie Wonder, that song is really just about superstition. It's about walking (laughs) under a mirror, uh, walking under ladders and breaking a mirror. It wasn't really until he appeared on Sesame Street in 1973 where that song became just an annual hit. And it wasn't just the fact that, I mean, he didn't perform it with scary monsters, but it kind of made it seem like it was a little bit more darker than it actually was because of the monsters that were there. So there's not a lot of songs that people write for Halloween. Even Werewolves of London was just a song that was created back in, you know, long before it was released in 1978. Warren Zevon actually wrote it in the late 1960s and wanted to give it to the Everly Brothers, who are by far, (laughs) you know, the non-creepiest duo that you'll ever find. Um, But it took things like putting them in a you know uh, an american werewolf in london movie to make it scary you know the time warp in itself from rocky horror yeah. isn't really a no. halloween song but you stick it in a you know really bad horror film like rocky horror all of a sudden <laughs> Every year, you got to play it. No, you're so right, and and there's a list that comes up every year. Um, in terms of people making Halloween music, has that happened? Like, has anybody ever done like a Halloween album? I, I can't think of any. No, but I I do have artists that when they do a little bit of a darker, creepier song, I'll go out to the media as a publicist um, as a Halloween-themed song, knowing full well that, again, on November the 2nd, it kind of kills the vibe and, and yeah. the buzz of whatever you have on it. So I think people have to be really, really cautious. And, you know, that's the problem, I think, with doing holiday music, is that when you're a brand-new artist doing a holiday song, you're competing against the greatest 
holiday music of Bing Crosby and Elvis. For Halloween, even though that, you know, you have Seasons of the Witch by Donovan and Ray Parker Jr., there's not a lot of them, but there's still, like, how many more Halloween songs do you need? And so that's, <laughs> you know, that's part of the issue is, like, after, you know, an hour's worth of it, are you really looking for more? So it's a little bit of a two-edged sword. There's some people that have made horror and creepiness part of what they do as as their musical act. I'm thinking Rob Zombie, Alice Cooper. I mean, do they do big Halloween extravaganzas ever, or is it just, uh, you know, do they make a, a day of it as well? I think in the 1970s, except for Rob Zombie, who wasn't around, yeah. even a band like Kiss seemed to be um, seen on those ABC Halloween specials with Paul Lynn back in the day. Um, and so you know, even Kiss did a, a kind of Halloween-themed horror schlocky movie um, called Phantom of the Paradise, and that was their, their takeoff of Phantom of the Opera. But there weren't a lot of, I think, you know, I mean, Alice Cooper was Halloween all year round. All year round, yeah. So, you know, you can go see him in an outdoor festival in July in 110 degrees in Arizona, <laughs> and he would still pretend that he just cut off his head during the encore. Yeah, exactly. Um, which, you know, awesome. Um, but realistically, I it, it's it always kind of... Look, music is always to be used as an escapism anyway. So most of the time, you're using music as uh, a way to forget or as a way to remember. And when you can kind of push the edge of what you think horror really is, and it's an all of an act, that's where you end up with Alice Cooper being able to do what he does at night, but during the day, play golf with presidents. Exactly, it's, yeah. just, it's just a <laughs> schlocky thing, which is kind of why it gets a little bit too weird when somebody like Marilyn Manson starts to get into trouble and you know gets charged with various activities from the police because maybe he pushed himself too over to the edge of what he thought you know, he should be. No, and, yeah. and that's where that line gets a little bit blurry. You're right. There is that line because, I mean, part of rock music is the theatrics that go around it. And there are there's a long list of bands that lean into gore and horror and all the rest of that stuff. And you're right. Marilyn Manson seems to be. And Ozzy. Ozzy got himself into a fair bit of, of <laughs> yeah. trouble, too. But, but, yeah, but the main difference is that Ozzy really can't remember. That's right. He, and so, really didn't know, care. Right. That if he's telling you it, you can't really understand him what he's saying. But, you know, with, with a song like Thriller by Michael Jackson, I mean, I, I, you know, in the beginning of it, um, he had that little couple of lines that said that this is not his personal beliefs, because he was a Jehovah Witness yes. at the time, and they didn't believe in zombies, they didn't believe in, in gore and, you know, the afterlife. So even though that he had to put it in there just to make sure that he didn't upset the reputation yep. of the Jehovah's Witness organization, he knew that this was still him having fun, that it was all fun and games until somebody else got hurt. Hey, I wanted to ask you, and I don't know if you know the answer, Eric, but as I was looking at the iTunes charts on Halloween, and I'm seeing Ghostbusters and Monster Mash and What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong, which may <laughs> well be the greatest song of all time, is in the top 10. What's going on? Why is Louis having a moment? Yeah, Louis's always having a moment ever since that the record label lowered the price to 69 cents okay. as opposed to $1.29. <laughs> so whenever you see things like um, really, really old songs like Phil Collins in the air tonight yeah. suddenly jump to number five, it, that's really what it is. But then there's also, you know, I, I think there's always songs like 
Fleetwood Macs everywhere um, right now is number six, not only because it's blowing up on TikTok, but it's one of the biggest car commercials in the world right now that Ford is using it for their 2023 line. So, um, so sometimes it's the commercial, but sometimes it's the actual price. Is that a thing that artists have, they have to be aware of this now. TikTok is huge, and if you can get into a commercial, suddenly a song that's, you know, you haven't made a penny off in 30 years can be a cash cow for you again. It's astonishing. I was actually talking to Andy Kim about this a yeah. couple of days ago where he co-wrote Sugar Sugar, and there were there was a meme video that was going around on Instagram of this dancing skeleton that looks kind of not really scary, but he's dancing in graveyards and in really spooky places to the Archie Sugar Sugar, which is probably the, the happiest song <laughs> yes. ever written. Um, he's going to be getting a very large royalty check from that and it you know he always used to um, every year but you know moments like this is where we talk about the social media algorithm yep. where nobody can predict what Facebook's computers are thinking except for if you always want bad news you're always going to get bad news because it knows what you're yes. thinking when songs like this suddenly come out of nowhere it's unstoppable. We saw this with Buffy St. Marie a couple of years ago, um, and we see this with a, a, a Canadian band called Mother Mother, who just for no reason than having a song with one line um, being more relevant during COVID and isolation, suddenly teenagers across America were using that for their dances through no fault of Mother Mother yeah. and through no doing of the band. So when something like this happens, you just duck and get out of the way and try not to screw it up. Yeah, like, like Kate Bush with running up that hill from Stranger Things. Yeah. You never know when lightning's going to strike. And you're right. If he does, just, just enjoy the ride as long as it lasts. Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting about that one is, like, you would think that most of Kate Bush's popular songs would be rising as well. You would suddenly see all these teenagers starting to wear yeah. Kate Bush t-shirts like Nirvana <laughs> or the remote. But it hasn't happened that way. Kate Bush's running up the hill is only really affecting Kate Bush's running up that hill, which is, you know, not to say that her catalog isn't worthy, because she's just a legend and a genius. Yeah. Um, and hitting a billion streams on Spotify Jeez. for that song. But there's no real spillover as opposed to, say, you know, Fleetwood Max every where, where you know that Rumors is suddenly going to be getting a jump. Yep. The Greatest Hits is going to be getting a jump as well. Yeah, Fleetwood Mac's everywhere ever since that video. Yeah, no doubt about it. Eric, great insight as always. Thanks so much. Happy Halloween, bud. You too. Thanks so much. Thanks, Eric. That is Eric Alper, who is a freelance music publicist and a serious XM host. And um, yeah, it's kind of, it's amazing how something will take off like that. And, you know, a song that hasn't been around for a long time is suddenly just massive a huge 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 hit thanks for listening today to hear any of our other interviews you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast and if you like what you hear don't forget to rate and review us Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.